the need for Bitcoin is the most in these countries. And it's also the strongest argument when people say we don't need Bitcoin. It uses too much energy. It's not good for the climate and things like that. You can always come back. And it's, in my point of view, the most important thing about Bitcoin being this empowerment for the 54% of humanity, which live under authoritarian rules. And so that was basically the main point of interest for me. I never saw it as an investment tool or, or something like that. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Nexo.io, Arculus, and FTX, and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Friday, February 25th, and today I am thrilled to welcome Anita Posh to the show. But before we get into that, if you are enjoying The Breakdown, please go subscribe to it, give it a rating, give it a review. And if you want to get deeper into the conversation, come join us at the Breakers Discord. You can find a link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash breakdown pod. Now, as I said, today we are talking with Anita Posh. Anita is a Bitcoin advocate, author, podcaster, and solopreneur. She's the author of Learn Bitcoin, a book that actually gives people tools to become financially sovereign. She's also the founder of Bitcoin for Fairness, a nonprofit focused on bringing Bitcoin to billions through education and resourcing of local stakeholders in emerging markets. As you'll hear on the show, Anita is about to depart on a journey to Southern Africa, where she'll be both sharing Bitcoin education as well as learning from local grassroots communities. As you'll also hear on the show, this type of activity is near and dear to my heart. And finally, if you need any more recommendation about why you should listen to what Anita has to say, here's what Lynn Alden had to say about her. Anita has done tremendous work in the Bitcoin community, including and especially the content she has produced about Bitcoin's use in less privileged regions of the world. Her book is a concise and approachable introduction to Bitcoin that covers all the major topics for someone to get started. Without any further ado, let's dive in. All right, Anita, welcome to The Breakdown. How are you? Hello, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm, I'm great, thanks. Yeah, this is this is exciting. We've been uh, we've had a couple a couple near misses uh, at previous like holiday shows and things like that. So I, I was really excited for this context because uh, I'm I'm excited to chat about the the trip you're about to take and just kind of your view on things more broadly. But let's start for people who aren't familiar with you or your work or your podcast. Uh, just give give us your background and and I mean I would love to know a little bit about how you discovered and came into the Bitcoin world as well. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, therefore, I have to start like 20 years ago because <laughs> I actually started, uh, I'm an urban planner, actually. And then in the year 1997, when uh, the internet came around uh, in Austria, I thought, wow, that's the thing. That's something I want to do. I want to be involved in this space. And I started uh, to be a web designer and work uh, in the online marketing e-commerce uh, space for about 20 years. And then in uh, 2016, I decided, okay, online marketing and e-commerce uh, is not really the thing I think is sustainable and, and what I want to do for the future and the rest of my life. And um, I was hunting for ideas, really, like opportunities. And uh, in 2017, I visited a talk about Bitcoin and open blockchains. And um, the, the speaker there uh, laid out the positive effects Bitcoin uh, can have on humanity and the social impact. And I was impressed. And that was the moment where I decided I want to work in this space too. 
and I set out to be a, a solopreneur, uh, trying to like work full time in the space. And um, in 2018, I started my podcast. The Anita Post Show, and I always had a focus on um, the, the the perspective of Bitcoin being not only a digital gold or an investment, as it's mostly seen here in the Western countries, but as a tool, really um, an embodiment of human rights in a way, uh, helping people, empower them, and things like that. And then in 2021, my book Learn Bitcoin came out. And earlier in 2020, I was the first time in Zimbabwe researching the use of Bitcoin there because people always in the space talk about Zimbabwe and Venezuela, uh, how they are the perfect ground for Bitcoin, uh, but almost nobody is going there. And I think I was the first uh, to, to report from there. And um, yeah, that led up into Bitcoin for fairness and all the things we are going to talk about today. Awesome. It's super interesting. A couple parallels, I think, just from my perspective. One, I've told the story before, but when I was first introduced to Bitcoin, I was in Silicon Valley and it was presented as just sort of a, it was like literally, which is ironic now, but a square competitor. It was like another option for paying with your coffee when you were pitching venture capitalists at, at Coupa Cafe. And I wasn't interested in sort of payments disruption on that level, you know, and certainly there were people in Silicon Valley. Dan Held was hanging out there at the same time and he got the implication. So it was not a not just not taking none, none of the blame, but it, it was something I just kind of didn't engage with. And my uh, my career had actually started in social impact and I had only come out to Silicon Valley originally to work with change.org, but had drifted at that time as technology will have you do. You know, you get pulled into a million di different directions. And it wasn't actually until I left and reconsidered. Bitcoin, uh, you know, years later in the context of social impact that I really got pulled in. So I guess I'm interested to know, you know, was it just that first talk or I mean, how it seems like you uh, what pulled you into the Bitcoin space was that sort of disruptive potential, disruptive global potential right away versus maybe coming to it for other reasons and then kind of exploring that that approach. Is that is that fair? Or? It was right away. Uh, the fact I, I, I felt that's interesting that that's uh, something I want to do. I want to explore that. And I mean, I was working as an online marketer and web designer at that time. And I, at the same time I was working full time, I had to learn about it. And uh, one of the first people I, I started listening to was Andreas Antonopoulos. And his uh, big influence uh, has always been on my work. And um, so I really came from that perspective because I also think that the need for Bitcoin is the most in these countries. And it's also the strongest argument when people say we don't need Bitcoin. It uses too much energy. It's not good for the climate and things like that. You can always come back. And it's, in my point of view, the most important thing about Bitcoin being this empowerment for the 54% of humanity, which live under authoritarian rules. And so... That was basically the main point of interest for me. I never saw it as an investment tool or, or something like that. Your podcast was one of the earliest things that you did. Was that like a learning in public kind of a thing for you at that time? Or what, what was the ambition when you started? So it was also learning um, because you can learn from the best if you interview them. And uh, learning in public is in general not so my thing. I'm, 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 mm -hmm. I'm, I have a, my background is more like doing things until you know them and then go out and talk about it. But um, it's, it's a, 
you can't do that in that space because everything is changing so fast. You have to keep up. You always have to ask questions. And at the beginning, it was a little bit um, a tool for me. I thought it's a marketing tool also uh, to get people into my courses and seminars because that was that what I, I did back then, like real life seminars about Bitcoin and blockchain and all this stuff. And more and more with then, then the success I had and the, the good feedback I got. And I also, I found it really special to be able to talk with Adam Beck and Andreas and Dan Held and, um, all those people who really built this industry and this technology and to learn from them. And so, uh, the podcast was really, um, very, very important also then for me to write the book, to have all the knowledge, because I always ask the sources, you know, I had firsthand information about these topics. Nexo is a trusted and easy to use crypto platform where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 18% annual interest that is paid out daily. They support all of the major assets on the market and even allow you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your crypto without selling it. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. Meet Arculus, the next generation cold storage wallet. Arculus secures your crypto using three-factor authentication, providing a simpler, safer, and smarter way to store, buy, swap, send, and receive crypto. Arculus is offline cold storage. Your private keys are encrypted on the Arculus keycard and are never online. Stay safe from hackers with no cords, no charging, no Bluetooth. Just crypto security made simple. Buy now at GetArculus.com. That's G-E-T-A-R-C-U-L-U-S.com. The Breakdown is sponsored by FTX US. FTX US is the safe, regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin and other digital assets with up to 85% lower fees than competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. One of the largest exchanges in the US, FTX US is also the only leading exchange that supports both Ethereum and Solana NFTs. When you trade NFTs on FTX, you pay no gas fees. Download the FTX app today and use referral code BREAKDOWN to support the show. What have you learned or how has your perspective changed around what it means to do Bitcoin education? The reason that I ask and I'm interested is that you clearly kind of got into the, you were excited about education really early in your journey with Bitcoin. And, and I imagine that over the course of four years of doing education in different formats of education, your perspective on it has probably evolved. Yeah, my perspective has evolved. I have I learned a lot in the last year uh, with the happenings in El Salvador. And my focus is now more on Bitcoin communities. Like when I started out here, I was like educating um, people working in the financial industry or, or entrepreneurs and things like that, you know, like investor type people. And now my goal is to share my knowledge with communities on the ground, with the people in those countries under those authoritarian rules. And what also shifted was the idea of how they can approach that. 
people in these countries very often have a lack of education. You can't explain Bitcoin in a global context in a way to them, but they very much understand the need for it firsthand because they suffer from the problems with the banking system. They really suffer, you know, and they have a much higher inflation and all these things. And I think I learned what the really important things are and that there are also are other forms and we will need them and they are coming now, um, other forms of custody. I mean, self-custody is the most important thing, um, but there are also models uh, like the Bitcoin Beach Wallet that now offer shared custody where a community uh, has trusted members and they are basically in a multi-signature. Um, they share the keys for the community because people sometimes don't have the possibility to store keys and, and secure them and things like that. So my approach has shifted from, on the one hand, the, the target group for my education, and I think also the, the approach how to do it. Um, it went from a, I'm educating uh, and I'm telling you how it works to I come here very humble and I share my knowledge with you if you want it. I think it's interesting. This is a journey that I think a lot of people make in general when they're interacting with emerging markets, with different socioeconomic groups. This is actually kind of where I had started. What I was doing in the social impact space was um, helping students learn about how to make a difference abroad. And, and basically, you know, I was... I went to college right around the time of the Iraq war, and there was a huge explosion of students who wanted to go abroad and see the world and be a part of it, right? It was like the rest of the world had kind of thrown itself into our purview after having kind of blissfully been unaware for, for the 90s growing up, and people wanted to go figure it out. And so you saw this massive increase in people who were studying abroad and this massive increase in people who were doing kind of volunteer abroad type programs. And what happened over and over and over again is that they got to their volunteer assignment and were like, I can do nothing. There is nothing here that I can be where I could be useful. I'm just dead weight. This is stupid. This is and, and you have this the worst of all scenarios, which is like the community being frustrated, the person who's put themselves there to help being frustrated. And it just seemed like it was uh, uh, there, there had to be a better way. Right. You can't tell a whole generation to just kind of like sit down and, and you know, go back to school for a development degree or something. Um, and so what we ended up doing was just totally shifting the approach to student education where if they wanted to go abroad to volunteer, we'd put them in teams of five. There was an education component beforehand. And then their job was just to do whatever. They were basically employees of the nonprofits or community organizations that they worked with. They didn't come in with some assignment or some kind of highfalutin idea. They had to just actually listen. And if it was clerical work and filing papers for 10 weeks or whatever, that was the most effective thing. And usually what ended up happening is that there was some idea that that organization had had for a while that they just want, needed more people for and needed more bodies to help actually get up and running. But it was a shift from we're here to help to we're here to listen and learn. And, you know, we are people with brains like you guys and, and hands and arms and can do things, you know, so so assign us. And that was a, a powerful shift. And I think there's a, a broader kind of um, lesson that I took from that in terms of just how we interact and learn from folks around the world. I guess that brings me to one of my questions that I had written down be before we chatted, which is, what are the most common misperceptions of how people think about Bitcoin in emerging markets versus the reality that you've seen, experienced, or learned about? Ooh, um, 
I think it starts somewhere else. It starts with the unimaginability of the struggles these peoples uh, live through. I think that's the most important thing that if you've never been there and really went there with the approach to learn from the people, you can't imagine how hard life is for them and what the obstacles are for them. Like in Zimbabwe, for instance, in your daily life, you have so many obstacles. Most of them don't even have the time or the money to be able to use it to learn about Bitcoin. I mean, it's an economic necessity sometimes, and they have friends that they tell them about it or they show them how it works. But it's not like you have free time, spare time, and then you play around with money. You can't do that there. One of the misconceptions is also our view, like here in Europe and in the US, we have a very well-functioning banking system. I mean, we have lots of problems with that too, but um, we are quite secure. But that's a thing that most of the people, like 2 billion people in the world don't have. They don't have access to a banking account. Uh, they can't get a loan. They can't even save money in a way securely. I think these are the misconceptions. And sometimes I think we think that the people, they, they need our uh, help or education. They don't. They manage. Um, they find, um, they are so entrepreneurial there. They have so many ideas um, because they have to have them because they wouldn't live through the next day if they, they wouldn't be able to be so flexible and change from day to day um, to, to earn their money to survive. And I think that's unimaginable for most of us here. Yeah. I, 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 that, I mean, that's certainly been my experience as well outside of the context of Bitcoin. So I think it makes sense that it would carry over and pour into it. And people, I mean, what has surprised you, I guess, about um, how people have thought to use Bitcoin or adopt Bitcoin? You know, was there anything that, that you know, specific scenarios or stories that you, you know, kind of uh, found surprising or interesting? Well, I met with a guy in Zimbabwe who um, has been using Bitcoin for years prior to 2020 um, to be paid in Bitcoin from uh, his, for his online marketing work that he's doing for uh, companies abroad. And um, I always also was surprised to see, like in Zimbabwe, Bitcoin in a way is outruled. You know, there is no regulation. Uh, in 2017, there were a lot of scams, and they even had a online, like an a official exchange uh, and a Bitcoin ATM in Harare. Um, but the government and the central bank then cracked down on it and closed it, and. Then you have a lot of peer-to-peer -peer groups there. So um, they don't have local Bitcoins uh, or Paxful there, not officially. So they meet in Telegram groups or WhatsApp groups. And um, if someone wants to exchange Bitcoin to US dollars, you just call someone and say, hey, can you meet me? And you meet the people then in person, like with the money dealers that I guess you know for sure them. So you meet the money dealer, you give them his, your Bitcoin and you get US dollars for it. So it's really a grassroots peer-to-peer -peer movement there, which actually, in my point of view, is the optimal and best and most sustainable way for Bitcoin adoption. 
when we use the term, so I've, I've used the term emerging markets a bunch of times. Um, you have had folks from all different types of places that would be categorized as emerging markets on your show. How much is that term useful versus obscuring, right? How, how much are the kind of the differences of experience for uh, Bitcoin entrepreneurs in Latin America the same or different than, you know, the folks that you were dealing with in, in Zimbabwe, for example? Okay, I now started and learned uh, a new uh, word for it. That's the global south, <laughs> because the global south is basically Latin America and Africa. Yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes it's really hard to say. I mean, I know I've learned you should not say developing countries, emerging markets is better. But what is an emerging market? As you say, I mean, Zimbabwe is not really emerging. I, I don't see that there. Yeah, it's very depressing there still, and um, the the economical situation is dire, and uh, the the government still uh, steals money from the people. So. Um, the differences, I think, between African countries and Latin American countries, if we even can say so, because it's a very, there are so many countries and millions of people living there. But um, I think that in Latin America, there's more stability, the education is a little bit better, the prospects like agriculture and things like that, you have a more stable economy in Latin American countries, at least that's what I've learned. And they are also technically very um, uh, on the front. And opposite to that, in Africa, I think you have loads of very, very young people who are very well educated and want to, to need a job and will want to work in the online space because nothing else is possible for them. And there are, I think, a lot of people who don't have access to a lot of like technical um, possibilities. Yeah, I've seen so many people with smartphones, on the other hand, which was surprising to me too. So like really in rural uh, Zimbabwe, you find people with smartphones and they are watching Netflix. So <laughs> it's, it's um, very, very different everywhere. But I think so in general, you can say Latin America is a little bit ahead of uh, African countries, I think, in terms of Bitcoin um, adoption also. Sure. I think part of it, I, I would imagine, is Bitcoin exposure tends to follow there's often an evangelical quality where someone from a place or from a community gets involved and starts to share that with their peers. Even if you look at the pattern of how Silicon Valley came to know Bitcoin, there are a handful, a very small handful of people who were the people who were rallying all of their peers, uh, you know, and, and getting everyone to to know about it, right? And I think it happened to be that a number of those early evangelists in the U.S. came from Latin American backgrounds too. So that that was sort of a just a jumpstart, right? Had there been a you know a Ugandan entrepreneur who was a big early Bitcoiner, you, you got to believe that East Africa would have been way earlier in, in its adoption curve, you know. Yeah, the sub-Saharan nations are at the moment uh, the second biggest uh, market in terms of trading volume, volume on peer-to-peer -peer exchanges. So it's North America and then sub-Sahara and then it's Latin America. So um, they are coming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, it's it's something that we've seen that that infrastructure is building, the, the interest is there. So let's talk about uh, the first time you went to Zimbabwe and Bitcoin for Fairness and how how kind of this this experience all started. And you can you can give the proper kind of sequence of events. 
Yeah, okay. So in uh, early 2020, that was before the pandemic, I went to Zimbabwe and Botswana because, as I said, I wanted to research if and how people really are using Bitcoin there. And um, to Botswana, I went because uh, Alakanani Itiri Leng uh, is there. She's the founder of Satoshi Center and one of the, the first um, I, women and women and I guess people in Africa who really started to educate their community about Bitcoin. And um, now in uh, 2021, I thought actually it would be interesting to do more work in that direction um, again, also with the learnings from El Salvador and the developments. I found it would be great to also open my work in a way as a platform uh, for others to contribute, to uh, share their knowledge in their local communities. So my goal is not only to go to Zimbabwe and to Zambia now, but also over the course of the year to Nigeria and to Latin American countries and also try to visit in South Africa. There is a uh, Bitcoin um, community um with surfer, uh, like a little bit like Bitcoin Beach. And I want to support them and want to help them uh, like making connections to the global Bitcoin community, to other developers so uh, that I can support their grassroots movement, you know, because I think it's the most sustainable thing to help people to start this thing, you know, their personal Bitcoin journey. And if they make positive experiences, they will share it with their peers. And I think um, that's sustainable more than like donating something to someone without knowing who is that and who is doing what with it. So the goal now is uh, Tomorrow I'm flying out to Zimbabwe. I will meet with people I've met two years ago. I want to know what are the changes, what, what has changed in Bitcoin, in cryptocurrency. I want to also know a little bit more about stablecoins, the use of stablecoins in these countries. And um, I'm going to do workshops and talks and I'm trying to meet with human rights activists because I think that's also very important. I'm bringing some Trezor hardware wallets. I would like to help them getting to know about BTC Pay server so that they are able to collect their donations over Bitcoin. A guy from Zambia then connected me and said, hey, I've heard you're going to Zimbabwe. Don't you want to come to Zambia too? And he organized a lot of talks, even radio interviews and TV interviews. So I'm going to be on the University of Zambia radio station and things like that, which is very exciting. And I'm looking very much forward to it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I I'm bringing up my past way more than I normally do, but there, it's it's so resonant with me. Like uh, the sort of programs that I was telling you about, those student programs, they came out of this uh, this summer experience. So I had had this very frustrating experience of wanting to go help people. I was studying in Cairo and I was working with Sudanese refugees. And this was 2004, and again, I was super super ineffective, right? Like useless. Other than like it was helpful to help people work on their English because that's a key part, you know, a, a necessary but not sufficient condition for relocation if you're a refugee, right? And the next summer, 
uh, you know, I was really frustrated. And so I was like, I'm going to go just learn and listen to, you know, young people in organizations all over the world. And I, I my friends called it Misery Tour 2005 because I went from uh, the Middle East to East Africa, to Rwanda, to like the, in, and back into the Balkans. So it was like all the places that had had recent conflicts that I thought, uh, you know, I might want to work someday because I thought I was going to do peace and conflict resolution. And, um, and it was very much that experience where it was like, one young person said, hey, you have to meet these other 18 organizations and like civil society and entrepreneurial societies flourish in these places. There is so much. Every person that you meet is on, you know, 12 different committees doing a million things. I mean, the, the amount of activity and sort of hustle is is pretty profound. And it's very cool to hear that that's sort of you've been your experience around the Bitcoin community down there as well. Um what are you uh, hoping to do in terms of sort of the story capture? I mean, will you be will you be podcasting from there? Will you be kind of or at least signing up guests for future podcasts? I'm interested in kind of how you're hoping to tell the stories that you learn on the ground back out to the world too. Yeah, I want to do some podcast interviews again, and um, we'll release them over the course of the following weeks. And this time, I'm also bringing a video camera. I mean, it's not very professional because I'm doing this on my own. It's the first time, uh, but I also want to um, bring some some pictures from there and show um, how people um, join and uh, how they learn and want to give them a voice like that they also can tell their story and their experiences with Bitcoin. So um, I'm not sure yet. I hope to do like a 15 minutes video or something about this uh, journey. It's very yeah exciting and <laughs> a completely new thing for me, you know, writing a storyboard for this thing and uh, at the same time preparing for the talks and the interviews. Um, it will be an adventure again. Obviously, the global context right now for the discussion of Bitcoin is so different than it was in early 2020. How does that change, if at all, how you think about these conversations? Or what does it change in terms of the questions that you want to ask? The answer may be, I don't know. You know, it's just, it's a, it's just it's, I think it's more of a recognition that there's such a hugely different world even than, than it was just, you know, 24 months ago. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the first thing I need to find out is how things have changed for the people like in Zimbabwe, for instance. I mean, what I know is when I came back then, the exchange rate from one US dollar to the Zimbabwean dollar was 1 to 80, I think. And now it's 1 to 220. So their inflation is, I think, the second highest uh, in the world. It's like 200, 300%, I don't know, after Venezuela. And so they have a daily fight with inflation. I'm not sure. I, I need to find out how African countries like uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe have been hit by by the pandemic. And also, I mean, they are far away from the war now in, in the Ukraine and from Canada, you know, with all these things that happened um, that show Westerners also that we might need censor, uh, uncensorable money and unstoppable money. That's a thing that Zimbabweans already know. So, yeah, I'll, I'm, I'm curious how it has changed if more people are using Bitcoin now, if they also try to hold it more. Because when I w was there two years ago, most people were talking about trading. I mean, there is a, a big tradition of trading in many African countries, and they also do it with Bitcoin uh, and other cryptocurrencies. 
And yeah, I'm curious to find out if there are more initiatives now, maybe also focusing on Bitcoin. But in Zimbabwe, you have to know that um, you have to be very sensitive when you speak about Bitcoin. I then very often talk about blockchain or cryptocurrency uh, because the government uh, doesn't really like um, Bitcoin in Zimbabwe. And you never know what happens because you don't really have freedom of speech. So um, I was advised uh, to speak kindly um, and don't like um, uh, attack the government uh, publicly and things like that. So, yeah. It's a di different context, different world. What can people who are interested in this journey do? How can they follow along? How can they support? Yes, thank you for the question. So they can follow me on Twitter, uh, Anita Posh. Um, there's a website that's uh, at bffbtc.org. There's also a possibility to, to donate, uh, which would be great. And um, yeah, I have a newsletter at anita.link slash news, where I will post or, or send uh, emails to my followers and talk about the recent uh, things that happened on my journey. Wonderful. Well, Anita, I'm so excited that you're doing this. I'm excited to chat with you when you're when you're back and you've had some time to digest uh, what you've learned. So good luck and, and look forward to talking again soon. Thank you very much for the invitation, Nathaniel. And yeah, I'm looking forward to. All right, back to NLW here. And just a quick reflection on the show. I want to highlight how important it is to challenge our priors and how important it is to not let places and people become memes rather than real people of real places. What brings this up in the context of Anita's journey to Zimbabwe is the fact that she first wanted to go to Zimbabwe because of how much Bitcoiners held it up as an example of a failed currency regime. It wasn't that she was skeptical of that narrative, but that she wanted to see for herself what that meant, what the context was, how things got there, and how people handled it. That's the complexity that's missing when we memify people, places, and events. I think it's incredibly important that we always try to push outside and beyond what we think we know about things, especially people who are so full of richness and complexity and confusion and chaos that trying to reduce them to a couple sound bites is never going to get the full truth. I'm excited to see what comes back on Anita's journey, and I'll be sure to have her back on the show to share that with you in the months to come. For now, I want to say thanks again to my sponsors, Nexo.io, Arculus, and FTX, and thanks to you guys for listening. Until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.